G'day friends of the show. In a world of great podcasts, believe me, I know there's a lot of good podcasts out there, which is why I am so grateful that you're listening to this one, considering that every man and their dogs have fantastic podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, you can support the show financially by heading over to itisdigest.org, becoming a plus subscriber, throw a few coins at us for coffee. Full disclosure, I don't drink coffee, so I won't be spending the money on coffee unless you specifically stipulate that. And then I guess I'll buy someone else a coffee that's around me with that money. I'll do as instructed. Or you can support the show socially by heading over to YouTube, subscribing, clicking a thumb up on every video, clicking the bell notification. You can head to Instagram, engage with us that way. I like to chat with friends of the show through Instagram. And a slight heads up on this episode. I'll be honest, it was very above my intellectual pay grade. I think I grasped some of the concepts in there. Let me know how you go with it. Helen Rollins, highly, highly intelligent person. And I think I'm still computing exactly what we were talking about. So see how you go. Let me know your thoughts. Hit us up on Instagram. Enjoy the episode. I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people. Categorizing of humans and ideas. You have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being. To who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas. These things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. G'day and welcome. See, g'day. That's how g'day, we, g'day. Actually, I'm g'day. an Australian person. And, <laughs> <laughs> g'day, I'm an Australian person. And welcome back to another episode of Ideas Digest, the podcast that explores the challenging ideas that divide us in order to open our minds. That's the goal. My name's Conrad. And if you're a new friend of the show, welcome. Old friends, of course, welcome back. Here we have a new friend of the show. Welcome. Helen Rollins. Is there a doctor, PhD, anything you not. want to drop? There oh, is okay. not. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's just, just me. Just, just me. Helen Rollins. Yeah. Uh, Helen, welcome to Ideas Digest. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Now, we are recent acquaintances. Mm-hmm. We, we've just met. And I thought, you know, someone's got some good ideas, some interesting ideas to share. But before we get there, okay. uh, there's a ritual we have kind of have to go through. Mm-hmm. When you meet someone new, obviously, you go, oh, yeah, get it, mate. Uh G'day, mate. <laughs> G'day, mate. That's the ritual. And you say, who, who are you and what do you do? That's the okay. general like overview. Right. So you can, give a, you can give a bird's eye view, who you are, what you do, as shallow or as deep. It's, it's okay. almost like it, we're in Belfast at the moment. We are in Belfast, yeah. Um, is this your like hometown? This or is, your, you don't this sound is my, like no, you're No, 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 I don't. This is technically my hometown, but I grew up in a lot of different countries. Okay. And I made my way back here. So okay. I don't sound like I'm from here, but I swear no. I am. Okay. At a certain, you know, to, I mean, it's a, it's a question, where are we from? Do we mm. become who we are by birth or by nah, experience? Too deep, too okay. soon. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've lost already. Let's say, let's say so Belfast. I'm, so I'm from Belfast, but I yeah. grew up in England, uh, Northern Ireland, yep. France, Belgium, Africa. So let's say- I've lived in and well, worked in those different countries as well. Yeah. Okay, so the world. The world, yeah, is, your, the world. is your home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, let's say we run into each other mm-hmm. just at the local yeah. Belfastian pub, yeah. right? Okay. And, <laughs> and, and, and we just meet for the first yeah. time and I go, oh, Helen, yeah, it's nice yeah. to meet you. Yeah. Who are you and what do you do? This so, is what you, your identity, you know, your job. Where, where you get your money from is where you kind of get your value okay. from. This is the question. Yes. So how would you answer it? In- so I'm a filmmaker. Uh-huh. I also do some writing and I have a podcast myself. Excellent. Very um, good. I used to be a teacher and I left that world quite quickly. But I have a background in like modern languages and philosophy. So I'm kind of interested in that. And I have lots of friends who are involved in the philosophy world. So I do a bit of teaching in that realm. I'm really into psychoanalytic theory. These mm-hmm. I kind of, I guess I'm like an idearsy filmmaker. Okay. Yeah. But I mostly, I mostly do narrative film. I really love storytelling, uh, creative writing, mm-hmm. and I maybe we'll come on to this in yeah, a second. Why? Why? Well, I aspire to be. I don't know if I'm mm-hmm. actually, but I um, think that storytelling has this emancipatory potential when it's used in an interesting way. Um, but and I can't like I'm not. I wouldn't call myself a, a philosophical person per se, but I can't seem to get away from that. Um, sphere of things. Okay. So, so it's not intentional. It just happens to be that way. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I'll be honest. Yes. I have just met you. Yes. <laughs> and I have judged you. 
Okay. Yeah, but I'm a nice person who will judge you. But Listen, yeah. everyone judges people. They, no, of course they do. They're yeah. just not as honest as yeah. I am about okay. it. So, oh, my gosh. So I've judged you. Right. Just firing from the hip here. Right. Can I confess my assumptions to you? Go for it, yes. And you get to confirm or deny. Well, it's true. But the thing is that this is a question. This is, I mean, if we talk about psychoanalysis later on, the uh-huh. idea, one of the ideas is that you know yourself much less than other people know you oh. and that the coming to know yourself is in the inter- interaction with the other you know oh so, geez you flipped yeah. that on its head but anyway so you probably know me better than i know myself to a certain degree we that's... can never see ourselves we don't know how we come across until we interact with the other who feeds back to us it's that, like recognition that's right? some level of like open humility that i think is an interesting practice to enter into to open yourself up to be judged mm-hmm. and to be open to it because normally the general perspective mm-hmm. from this segment has yeah. always been Here's what everyone's saying about you. Yeah. And the underlying assumption is that they don't know who you are. You get to correct the record. I would say psychoanalysis shows that you don't even know yourself. All right. Well, I'm going to tell everyone who you are. Right. And you can add some depth (laughs) to it if you like. I I like that angle. That's actually quite the – there's a lot of depth in that. I'll let friends of the show just sit and bask in in that in their own time. But first one, Mm -hmm. uh, film. Mm Mm-hmm. Arty type. Okay. You must be, let's face it, a starving artist. No, no money, <laughs> no job. How's that going for you? Well, I do have a job, and, and I'm I'm produ- currently I'm producing a mini series. You get paid for that. I get paid for that. Yes. You're in the one percent. Yeah, I guess. Is that the- well, it's interesting because there is this question of, you know, would you rather? Obviously, some people, and the arts is full of very, very privileged people. Okay. And there's a lot of... That's my um, next assumption. Yeah, there's Bloody a lot privileged. of... Interesting. So there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, veiling of privilege that often is like, you know, the lady doth protest hiding too much. It. Hiding it. Uh-huh. So, but then often, unfortunately, co-opting issues that relate to people who truly are underprivileged by privileged people who can wear this as a cloak to sort of... and. Is I that think, the accusation of like culture appropriation on some level? Well, like it's funny because I would... Appropriation. Class appropriation. <laughs> Is I mean, that a thing? I think there's a lot of um, desire because in the arts there is... Art is a confrontation with contradiction, I think. Mm-hmm. And within every system that we have, there is a contradiction. And in our capitalist system, it's the class contradiction. And in order to sustain the system, you have to do some level of denial of that contradiction Mm -hmm. because it's too uncomfortable. And Hegel and Marx, who is a Hegelian, wrote about this a lot in terms of like different forms of social organization in the past, like slavery. The antagonism is so obvious at a certain point, it becomes untenable and we must like move into a different um, form of social organization. So from slavery to feudalism and feudalism to capitalism. But the contradiction is still there. And often, so art for me at its best is that which exposes us to contradiction. So it tells us that the world cannot be captured in a binary. And we experience this in in various forms in, you know, um, poeticism or in um, narrative, which gets us to encounter the complexities of the world. And that contradiction applies to everything in the universe, including the economic system, political system that we're in. But we try to, with ideology, paper over those contradictions. So art, at its best, is ideology critique. But at its worst, it uses the aesthetics of that as if it's something innately emancipatory to be propagandistic and to cover over the contradiction. And often, this is a difficult thing because art takes a long time. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is economically useless precisely because it's emancipatory because it doesn't when it well this is a whole other thing it doesn't fail it does what it's supposed to do and that is something that can't be captured but maybe we'll that takes a lot of logic Mm. to get to so maybe we'll get to that in a second but um so it takes a lot of time and that time requires money different periods of time there were different ways of doing it you know you would um you know, monasteries, for instance, people would write and write intellectual texts in a monastery, people who are like out protected in some way from the ravages of like having to just fend for themselves. Uh, sometimes there were patrons, you know, that you had these writers like Voltaire, for instance, they would be a, a tutor for a wealthy family. I mean, this is, you know, this is not to say this is a good system because the feudal system is also terrible. But, you know, you'd be patronized and you would make work by somebody who um, it was a symbol of their wealth to be able to dedicate money to something so 
you know, mm. wasteful, quote unquote, even though I think it's like the most important thing ever as art. And today it's very difficult because we, how how do you fund it? How do you find time to fund it? So Because if you're getting paid for it. If you're getting paid it for it, changes does it, the does nature it change of it? it? Does it change the nature of it? So like advertising yes, film. Yeah. But it's TV difficult. ad is the movie. And I think that there is a way. I don't know if reconciling is the right word, but I think if you understand the logic both of the economic structure and of our psychological investment in the economic structure, you can get to somewhere better with art. And there have been periods of like better often, without money. Art's better without money. Well, and you need money, but I think there's a place where you can get to where you can make something good that does the job of art but that also is economically viable mm. i think it's not easy and i think it involves like a lot of one of the issues with capitalism is the obfuscation so we don't even know what we're dealing with um but and there, ha there are times you know you see films whereas a film is you know what i'm into and what i do that are brilliant and that aren't just either um you know oppositional ideological or like a release valve so that you go to the cinema you kind of feel good about yourself for two hours and you go back to just being a really good worker or whatever mm -hmm. um but yeah so i do make at the moment i am making a i can't really give that many details but that's how i get my money cool. otherwise i do teach yep yeah okay I, we got there and I think we got a glimpse into where we're going. Okay, go for it, yeah. And But I'm still on judging you. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I haven't yeah. gone past it. Yeah. Okay, film, not starving everybody. Well done. Well, Congratulations. But, well, well, I don't know about that, but it's not Depends easy. Depends where you live. It's not easy. <laughs> yeah, okay. it's definitely not easy. Yep, okay. Yeah. And the accent, you know, okay. this is my, perhaps my colonial heritage. Yes. <laughs> you sound like you're more from London. Yes, yeah, so I went to school in England. You think you're better than me? Because I'm from Australia and we're the colonies. You look. Are you no. looking down upon me right no. now? No, but this, this is the Australian this insecurity. Is, they, what you think other people think of you is what you think about yourself to a certain level. Don't don't so, psychoanalyze <laughs> me. No, no. This is my damn podcast. I have a lot of. I mean, the thing is, okay. So I think everyone where they come from. So we've just been at this event where there are lots of Christians and post-Christians, mm -hmm. and what often happens is that people go through a level of trauma given the social organisation that they grew up in every social organization has its own antagonisms and its own repressed antagonisms and some social organizations maybe are more damaging than others but mm -hmm. there is no outside of antagonism so i think everybody thinks to a certain level that where they come from is particularly bad and egregious and we get this a lot with there is a quote-unquote white supremacy in that white man's burden where it's like I, in particular, the white person, am worse than everybody else. You know, I am morally superior. Oh, no, I'm better than Americans. Yeah, I'm... Well, but, that's... Yeah, but that's then I <laughs> think I'm better than the British. The but British. there's always that... But, that's cricket antagonism. The, well, the thing is, though, that I think that basically I would have a lot of criticisms about, in, like, the British history and stuff. Yeah. But at the same time, I would acknowledge that there are... There are not... It's not, you know, nothing's one thing or the other. And that to say that we are worse than anybody else mm -hmm. is supremacist in its own way. I'm going to chalk you down as a yes <laughs> on that one. Uh, and, okay, uh, I got two more. Okay. And uh, some people might be listening. Okay. And they're like, you're dropping some Hegel, you're dropping yeah, some okay. philosophical psychoanalytic theory. <laughs> okay. Uh, Absolute bullshit. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> you must be. Okay. Don't wiggle out of this one. Yeah. Some like out of touch intellectual. You're just in this ethereal yeah, so, realm of so, ideas. No, I, I actually, Lost touch with the common man. I actually really try the entire time. Like, this is something that you, you're like, your past pursues you, right? I left academia. I really dislike. You were an academic. I, well, you are an academic. No, well, so, so I, but I, yes. I, I think this is why I make film. Okay. So the problem with ideas only, and our friend Pete did a lecture the other day about Hegel, um, sorry, Lacan's four discourses, that. Um, the university discourse, which, well, okay, I don't know. I keep like raising these ideas and I was like, this is so stupid because I'm going to have to talk about it for ages. And also like, I really couldn't give a fuck about the intellectual stuff, seriously. I'm always trying to be like, Sorry, if you reflect I'm not, I'm not an intellectual people. Stop asking me questions. But anyway, so basically, but the point being is. Well, how other people see you might be the I'd most write, accurate write, 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 I know. I will say yes. So basically, what was I going to say? That, um, okay. The problem when things are purely intellectual mm -hmm. is this idea of consciousness raising, right? Mm -hmm. I think consciousness raising doesn't work. I think unconsciousness raising is what works. Okay, which I'll is why I'm a filmmaker and not into like, mm, okay. like a political theorist or something. And I feel like you're alluding to maybe where we're going because I like okay. that. I want to okay. come back to that. So okay. put a pin in that specific <laughs> idea. Last one. How dare you mention 
capitalism in a critiquing sense. Yeah. You bloody communist. Well, communism is capitalism's dream. Tell me more. So, okay. My, I would argue, and I think a lot of people argue, is that Marx became, Marx was a critic of liberalism, as in the form of um, political ideology that comes along with Western capitalism, up until the point where he became a liberal, where he predicts ca- communism. Okay. So Marx is a Hegelian. I like Hegel. Hegel has a reputation like for being... like some smart philosopher dude. Yeah. So, if has a, show, so basically, Hegelian, yeah. let's say... I think the most important part of Hegel is the foregrounding of contradiction. It's the idea that everything at a certain point folds in on itself. And this is proven, you know, gradually becoming, he wrote in the like 19th, early 19th century, around the time of like Napoleon and stuff. But we're seeing this manifested. We, we see this in our own lives often, and we can give some examples, but you know, quantum physics and all this kind of stuff. Um, and Hegel is slightly impenetrable, but um, he's actually very clear on contradiction. And Marx used the Hegelian approach to understand that. So basically Hegel in the phenomenology of spirit like analyzes different epochs and social organizations and how um, each form, well, he d- it goes from like, like he starts off with like rocks and language and how they are contradictory. And the idea of like evolution is an example of how Biology itself is contradictory. You know, like you you fold into something new, and he he takes different forms of. So we've all, often heard of things like the master slave dialectic, which is really bastardized in um, contemporary cultures. Questions of like somebody is just like mean to somebody else or whatever. It's actually much more complicated than that. Um, but basically, he, he analyzes different forms of society and where the contradiction is in that form of society and how there is an evolution of different forms of political organization when the contradiction becomes too obvious, too too unbearable to manage and something and, and the system falls in something in something so, new. So you're saying like these ideas, so yeah. the reaction of Com- of capitalism to communism if you critique capitalism you must be a communist it sounds bollocks, like yeah. you're outlining the interconnectedness of the two of so basically ideas. hegel one of hegel there's a really famous quote of hegel which is the owl of minerva flies at dusk the owl of minerva being like minerva is like the roman goddess of wisdom right uh-huh. i think or is it the greek one don't know can't remember tell you. um but basically the idea is like you can't so at dusk like late in the day you can't predict the future. If you predict the future, you are basically going from truth, which is contradiction. You don't know, you, you can't predict. The world is complex and contradictory. It'll fold into something. We can, sit, we can have insights about the world, but we can't predict the future. And as soon as you do that, you turn into sort of this religious, oppositional kind of character, which is sort of what capitalism does. And when the, the worst of the system is this, totalitarian belief that you can control everything that you you know it's absolute but totalitarianism is never total enough contradiction has to go somewhere either in like a scapegoat or something like that so as soon as marx predicts communism and he offers the liberal a solution to capitalism in a beyond of antagonism like maybe we will get to communism but there's no guarantee and i think a lot what we see in terms of what's going on with like crappy quote-unquote left-wing politics the left philosophically speaking, is not necessarily what we see aesthetically in left and right dynamics today. It's this understanding that there is no beyond of contradiction. And instead of turning contradiction into opposition, so contradiction is like the difficulties, the lacks, the nuances of life. And you turn these into reactionary oppositions, black and white, this person's good, this person's bad. And we can talk about like how that works logically as well. But the left position is the position that does that refuses to do that and so the left-wing position might look really different at different periods of time but often what happens is a left becomes binary in adopting actually emancipatory contradictory dynamics in past orders to sustain the order today that's kind of a long-winded and also there's loads in there to like break down (laughs) yeah yeah. i'm gonna try and compress it okay i don't know how much Okay. It's a small box, right. so I don't know how much of that I'll fit in. Okay. But here's maybe what yeah. I might be gathering, yeah. is that when you said at the beginning, communism is the utopia or the ideal of capitalism, mm-hmm. but then you're talking about the inherent contradiction that 
exists in these things. It sounds like capitalism is the system that within it is like this dynamic contradictions always kind of existing. The values always are changing. Mm-hmm. People, mm-hmm. the markets, like in, in the ideal form, this free-floating mm-hmm. value is mm-hmm. just accrued by everybody inputting mm-hmm. it. It's like mm-hmm. the output of every individual. Mm-hmm. But then communism is this idea where everything gets their value and everything, uh, every person gets what they're mm-hmm. worth. Which is like that, there's no problem with that. Like that's, yeah. that is like, that's an aspiration that I think like people should. And the other thing is, by the way, when you talk to somebody who's like extremely right wing, I'm sure that's also their aspiration. Pete talked about yesterday, like the religious person who belie- who's a communist themselves because they're like, oh, in heaven, it's all going to be fair. And well, yes, you've get got this, this gun toting free market yeah. uh, conservative yeah. uh, evangelical Christian yeah. who's like, don't you dare take my guns, free markets, <clears throat> yeah. the best thing ever. Communism, socialism is the devil. But when I get to heaven... We're all going to have our mansion. Exactly. We're all going to sit at Jesus' yeah. feet. Yeah. We're all going to be equal. Yeah. There's going to be no pain and suffering. Yeah. And then if you transpose that to the now, that's their hell. Hell yeah. is where so it's like, everyone owns the means of production. But this is the same thing. So I would say that um, a lot of... We think that we're beyond religion, right? We live in this atheistic age. But actually someone like Nietzsche would argue, so he wrote in The Gay Science. Sorry, I feel like I'm like quoting all this. Like, I really, I really just don't yeah, we're coming like, back. Anyway. I'm such so, intellectual. I'm here with we you go. right here. Here we go. So he wrote, the Buddha, after the Buddha died, his shadow was cast on a cave wall for a thousand years, right? So we, we can atheistically, we can be like, I don't believe in God, yeah. but the shadow of God is is like cast upon us. And what's the shadow of so God? So the shadow of God is this belief in wholeness and completeness, this utopian lunge that we all have within ourselves. And yeah. this is because of the way that we are born into human subjectivity. And is communism one manifestation it of, could a uto- be. of a utopia? It could be. So, so the progressive lefty who might want a more equal, and one solution mm-hmm. was, hey, the means of production, how about we all own them so there's not this owner class V the underclass, let's all own them and that will be a utopia, which in the end often just turns into... So the reason why, okay, all of those are perfectly rational and good aspirations, okay? But they're only rational and good when they are rational and good and based in the dialectical reality, the messiness of the here and now. So uh, the philosophical left-wing position is like, like heaven is a place on earth, right? Heaven is a place on earth, not because the earth can be this utopian heaven, but heaven itself is divided. There's there we live in the here and now. We don't know where we're going in the future. It's messy. It's a bit shit, and we have to deal with it. What happens as human subjects when we have something? We cast something as a wholeness and completeness. Mm. We will never get it. Logically speaking, the reason being that. By the way, Freud was also a Hegelian, so this is why there's a similarity, some similarity between Marx and Freud, and Hegel. So. The idea for Freud is that the Adam and Eve characters um, became compelled by the apple, not because the Garden of Eden was amazing to start off with, but rather it became amazing when they lost it. So this is to do with the way in which humans, humans are born twice. They're born, you're born into come out kicking and screaming, right? At like zero, and then by about nine, about eighteen months old, you've separated from your mother, and you enter into you're born into language, and this is to do with the fact that humans are born too soon. People, have, human beings are bipedal. We have small pelvises, but we have a really ginormous head. So we are born unlike an elephant that's born and just runs off on the plains of Africa. The human subject is born and is the fetus attached to their mother for a certain period of time. They rely on being fed. You know, they 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 cry. They don't know what they want, and the mother feeds them and soothes them and gets it gets it, necessarily gets it a bit wrong because they went through this process themselves. So they themselves aren't whole and complete. And at a certain point, when we're a bit bigger and a bit more steady on our feet, we become a separate being. And that separate being um, is, you know, there's a, there's a break that happens where we once were part of this wholeness and now we're not. And we're always marked with this experience that like when I was back there, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't amazing because we didn't, we didn't, A, we were like completely chaotic beings with no subjectivity and like it's just a complete like void of hell and we're screaming and all this kind of stuff. But 
we imagine that what we've lost was amazing. Suddenly the mother's breast becomes this fantastical object, right? Um, so the mother becomes this utopian figure. And this is why, by the way, this is where a lot of like critical theory comes from Freud. And a lot of what we hear in like the university discourse is this oppositional, not quite getting it stuff about like gender relationships and all this kind of stuff. So the, the idea of misogyny for Freud would be from the fact that we overinvest in our mothers because we lost her. We were part of her, then we lost her. And this overinvestment means that we're constantly disappointed. And that's where this idea of misogyny comes from. It's not like men hate women. It's this dialect. It's, it's in the overinvestment that you get disappointed. And so, so anyway, that's a whole separate issue. But um, so where was I going? So you, this utopian feeling, we only feel this, we, we, we feel the sense of lack because we existed before we spoke. So we're always marked by a certain emptiness that we can never get back to. And we constantly seek to overcome that lack. Mm -hmm. That trying to overcome the lack is a positive. It makes us invest in things. It makes us fall in love. It makes us get jazzed up about things. Mm -hmm. That's all fantastic. But there's a downside to it, which is we believe that there is something out there that can scratch the itch of lack. But that lack is that which generates our desire and our language and we need the lack and we can't overcome it. So someone like C.S. Lewis, yeah, when he says, and this is the, the uh, probably mainline Christian worldview, mm -hmm. which is because there is this itch I cannot scratch, mm -hmm. to paraphrase in a completely different way, there must be an almighty back scratcher out there that can hit the itch if I have a desire that cannot be filled in yeah. this earth or whatever. Then there must be something out yeah. there, therefore I'm made for something more. Whereas it sounds like you're saying that lack, that yeah. itch that cannot be scratched is the ideal that drives us forward to It's that which creates the everything. feeling that there might be something, but there isn't something. There, and so you would say... There isn't something, but, but uh, there's a journey on the way to the on to way to, to the something that doesn't exist. That's the best thing, and that's life. That's life. You're like, and 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 that engine, yeah, to try and achieve what can never be achieved. Yeah. If you have achieved it, it would all be over. Creates art, yeah, creates business, exactly. Creates innovation. We create exactly. something from this exactly. desire to have a perfect exactly. utopia. But the trouble is, if you religiously believe in it, as in like. If only I got this, then da da yes. da da. You a you hold yourself hostage in the present. You're depressed because you can. You, you're it's so there. shit. You're not there. But also, you will never get the thing. So the utopian utopias cannot exist in our divided world. We come from the Big Bang. We come from. We can't have light without dark. We can't have on without off. Mm -hmm. Like we only we only exist as human subjects insofar as we lack. So if we believe that we can have a wholeness and completeness without lack. Like that, that cannot logically exist. So what we do is we, this is where enemy making comes in. And this is where right now we have extreme culture wars. Mm -hmm. I think precisely because we have so obfuscated the true dynamics of capitalism and both left and right, we look at it in a way that is not reality and we project utopias onto it. But the utopian thinking either gets us to shoot ourselves in the foot because if we keep accidentally not getting the thing, at least we have the fantasy that it can still exist. Because the trauma of acknowledging that it doesn't exist also mm. involves acknowledging that there isn't a God or, I don't know, I mean, that God Pending himself. definition of that, God. Yes, that God itself is lacking, that there isn't a solution, yeah. that all there is is the here and now. And you're kind of both unfree because you're born into it without choice, but you're ultimately had this sort of like, responsibility in a way you're like your freedom is your constrained responsibility to act in the here and now and this is by the way when people say oh psychoanalysis is just like mystifying and you don't actually get anything done it's like no it's this actually this acknowledgement this getting to the stage of being let down to reality to confront it as it is that gets you to take action in the present and we can't prescribe what that action looks like it depends on the situation so so we either shoot ourselves in the foot and i think we're all familiar with having done this where we have this goal which should be not that difficult for us to do, but we keep contingently coming up with situations that prevents us from getting it. But that sustains this like wonderful fantasy that I would just be happy if. Mm. And it gets us from living in the here and now. Or we create an enemy because the enemy is this contingent person behind whom utopia exists in its shadow. So this is exactly what Hitler did with the Jews. So if I overlay 
this onto like some pop culture. Okay. <laughs> pop culture. Oh, I don't know. Political. Pop political culture, <laughs> if that's even a thing. You've got a group of people mm-hmm. who believe in, let's take America. I've got to love America. It's the land of extremes and just a bunch of really interesting people. And you've got one group of people, let's say the pro-Trumper or the pro-Bernie and they have this ideal of what they want to reach, what they want to achieve. The capitalist is like, I want this pure free market because the free market will allow me to become a millionaire or become a billionaire. Like, don't show me the data that shows I'm less likely to become a millionaire than ever before in American mm-hmm. history. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. This is the myth that I believe. Mm-hmm. I'll, if I, I'll believe this is the utopia I can achieve and I'm going to keep trying, but work harder. That's mm-hmm. apparently mm-hmm. how you get there. Mm-hmm. You just work super hard. But I can't keep getting mm-hmm. there. So I either acknowledge that, hey, maybe I actually can't and we need to grapple with the fact that mm-hmm. maybe this isn't the pathway to becoming a millionaire mm-hmm. if that's my utopia. Mm-hmm. Um, or I can then, I can just pick an enemy, mm-hmm. like an enemy making machine. It's those bloody Bernie Sanders people that want welfare for everyone. That's stuffing out, or it's the government, right? The government's holding yeah. me back because mm-hmm. of all these regulations. Yeah. And now I can put all my energy into fighting the thing that I think is mm-hmm. getting in the way of mm-hmm. me and my utopia. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you're talking exactly about good. this tension between the ideal, mm-hmm. which can form some kind of religious worship of mm-hmm. how, who I should be, yeah. versus the pragmatic mm-hmm. real yeah. of like, is this actually yeah. possible? Exactly. Now, how does, I suppose for people unfamiliar with psychoanalytics, I just remember sitting, <laughs> listening to a psychoanalyst recently yeah. in a small room in Belfast thinking, oh, what the... Uh, uh, I'm I'm completely lost so how does like does psychoanalytics from at least what Mm -hmm. I'm trying to piece Mm -hmm. together does it deal with the human's desire for the idealism what I should be exactly and then help grapple or move through that with what's actually pragmatic like can this be achieved why do I want this tell me how so psychoanalysis you go into psychoanalysis so by the way this first of all is like Like, I, I do think that you can get to psychoanalytic insight through reason, but reason is not enough. Like, Freud had this idea that you can't just think your way to the cure. Okay, because I have so, a friend who, he was, I was texting him recently, and mm-hmm. he was like, mm, psychoanalytics, he's a behavioral theorist. Oh, right, yes, they hate each other, yes. <laughs> oh, there you go, yeah. yeah absolutely. He was like, mm, there's just no evidence. There's no data. And so you've kind of Except, okay, do you that. know what the greatest evidence is for the You're unconscious? Which is, which is... Um, uh, George Bush the other day saying, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. so the world's greatest Freudian slip, like that is a Freudian slip. Where he said, where it was George Bush is setting so up saying, megalomaniac. The, <laughs> the atrocity of the evasion of Iraq. Ah, oh, I mean Ukraine. <laughs> oh, well, I guess, oh, well, yeah, that was said. Yeah. So anyway, um, right. Psychoanalysis. Yes. So psychoanalysis. This is the practice of this theory. So in psychoanalysis, there's the, there's the, the practice, the actual going to a therapist and then the theory. And there's a little bit of tension. I think some psychoanalysts think that people who are like, I'm not a psychoanalyst. I just am interested in psychoanalytic theory. But I think that, and what I argue is, so I, what I try to do with my work is do psychoanalysis in film. So, and I think film is a very psychoanalytic medium. And it's interesting because like I studied uh, literature at university and I did like film and stuff and uh, the psychoanalytic film theory that you get is a little bit a lot wrong and it you know we we're talking about the the gender stuff in terms of Freud and how it gets sort of slightly binarized and turned into this sort of capitalistic ideological supplement to disguise true antagonism it's kind of what happens with film theory and I actually think like so people use psychoanalysis quote-unquote to like depth psychologize a film and see the hidden meaning and i'm like no film is psychoanalytic and it doesn't really matter about like some interpretation so psychoanalytic so so when you say film is psychoanalytic film echoes the structure or can echo at its best the structure of the practice of psychoanalysis so psychoanalysis which i'm unfamiliar with is like going into a room Sitting in front of somebody, yeah. and is it just projecting stuff onto that person? There's various different schools of psychoanalysis. Freud was absolutely 
like when he developed it, when he discovered the unconscious and he developed his sort of science, he was so protective of that science and he kicked so many people out of psychoanalysis. And you can kind of see why, because it's so easily misconstrued and it's actually a really powerful tool. And if you get it wrong, which I think a lot of people have had experience with, it can be really bad. Anyway, so... um, Basically, Freud, the Freudian Lacanian psychoanalysis, and also like, there's loads of people like Beyond, there's so many psychoanalysts in this vein. It's basically, it involves you, even if, let's say, you're a person who's like, I had read loads, I just finished two years of psychoanalysis, I stopped because I was a starving artist and didn't have enough money to finish the time, but it was really useful. But, um, and the thing that's annoying is like, this is another issue with just psychoanalysis in the economic system that we're in, it's like, it takes so long to train. Like the average age, I think, of a psychoanalyst qualifying in Belfast is 60. It takes so long oh. to train. So obviously that means it's costly because yeah. they have to recoup on the investment of doing that. Um, and often when you need it, you know, material conditions can make your life really difficult and can affect the way you subjectively interact with the world. And so when you need it, you often can't afford it. <laughs> and then when you can afford it, although, you know... Uh, wealth so, does not wealth solves a material issue but it does not so- solve an existential issue and unless you can pay a psychoanalyst unless you can pay so, a psychoanalyst so if so, you walk in so you did psychoanalysis like the yeah. subject of yeah. psychoanalysis for a year you walk into this room mm. what happens so the way it, it depends so psychoanalytically there are different forms of human subjectivity there's neurotic perverse psychotic and also potentially autistic as a separate subjective structure and each of those it's to do with the way you developed as a speaking subject in your primary years and things work out in different ways most people are neurotic there's potentially it's to do with the figures that are around you and the society in which you live that affect which form of subjectivity you so, you, you enter into so when you went in mm-hmm. they would you would find out which one of these they tend categories. not to want to tell you but everyone wants to know, right? Everyone's like, what am I? But then the so, idea is it doesn't matter. It doesn't so matter. They, right, okay. It matters that maybe they would bear it in mind in the way that they interact with you. Because like, right. for instance, a psychotic person can't do transference as well as a neurotic person. And most people are neurotic. Most people are, well, and yeah. So these are like different categories. Different types of the way that you relate to language, the way your ego is formed. And so what is a psychoanalyst looking from okay, you when yeah. you walk in they're like they're just sitting there and you sit in front of them yeah. and then you're like uh, so what happens so. is you you speak right it's all about your speech you just, you just talk. talk and it doesn't really matter what you talk about so this is the idea as well like so there's this idea that psychoanalysis is about depth you know you like look and you find a hidden something hidden but the idea is it's actually all, and this is where the other knows you better than you know yourself it's all there on the surface it's all there in your speech and when you start to hit understand the analytic discourse and the way it works, you really pick up on these things and other people. Obviously, like, I can't go around giving it, and because I as well, like, so a proper psychoanalyst, a psychoanalyst would do so much of their own therapy because there's this transferential thing where you always are projecting what you already think on You might else. see something So I see something, but rather, and then I'll, if I give them advice, it was probably me that I'm hearing something in you that speaks to me. Yeah. Or that, yeah. Anyway, so it's very dangerous. And it's really... The word psychoanalyst is just chucked around. So Jordan Peterson often calls himself a psychoanalyst, which he's a clinical psycho, a professor of clinical psychology and is also a Jungian, not a Freudian. So it's very, very different. And it's like, yeah. Different different, uh, disciples of different Jesus figures. Well, let's say Freud is is an anti-Jesus figure. Okay. Yeah. Freud. But... In order for people to understand that he's an anti-Jesus figure, like, well, actually, Jesus, Jesus himself is an anti-Jesus figure, right? Like, anyway, that's a whole other thing. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. so, 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 Freud, where we go? Oh, yeah. So it requires, and this is why I think film is so good psychoanalytically. It requires this overinvestment from the person going in. You believe, even if you've read loads of psychoanalytic theory and you know the end game of psychoanalysis, still because of the way that we're born into language and we have this religious dimension, this dimension in us that is beyond logic, we go in and we think this guy is going to sort it all out for me and he's going to tell me what to do. My life's Mm. shit. I want this. And he's going to come in and help me. What is the end game? To realize that the psychoanalyst knows nothing himself. 
Oh, well, there you go. Cheat. Don't bother going, everybody. That's the answer. The trouble is you can't will your weight. It doesn't work. It doesn't work just to know it. You have to experience it. Ah. It doesn't work just to know it. And this is the thing. This is the problem with intellectualism when it's just intellectualism. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yes. So, and I think this is an interesting thing <laughs> because in, on some level, I'll take the... I'm kind of like going through, oh, yeah, Jungian, Bonhoeffer, whoever, all these people. Oh, yeah, cool. You're like Freud. I don't know. All these great thinkers who Conrad's never read. Yeah. Well, um, ditto most of the people you mentioned. So. <laughs> as I, as I un- unpack it a little bit, yeah. you've got this goal yes. of trying to understand yourself through – and I think on some level – this podcast. Yeah. I, I, I came to this podcast with the foreshadowed conclusion mm-hmm. of you can't change anybody's mind on anything. Okay. And I don't I I would I would enter the realm of saying I don't think ideas change people either. Yeah. Like I can, you know, I don't know how many discussions have you had been like Seriously, I will give you the best logic, the mm-hmm. best set. Like, take any American, any mm-hmm. American, no, some Americans <laughs> and universal healthcare. It's yeah. Like, let me show you literally all the objective data mm-hmm. on health mm-hmm. outcomes, payment, how much it costs, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. UK has it, Australia has it, blah, blah. You, and some like super diehard mm-hmm. um, freedom, yeah. free market. Libertarian or, or whatever. Libertarian yeah, or whatever. Yeah. They're like, nah, the American exceptionalism, yeah. we're the best. This is yeah. the way to do it. Yeah. You can't, I don't like, you just, you can't. Yeah convince them with that idea so it sounds like on some level psychoanalytic theory is like entering into yeah a is it like or it's sounding if it's like a practice to transform you yeah is it almost liturgical yes like a religious structure where someone goes into that box yeah and they sit in front of the priest and like ah like i thought of three women today that weren't the right woman i'm supposed Mm -hmm. to think about ah i send or whatever Mm -hmm. um is it kind of... It's similar. Kind of like that. So, I mean, I don't know, because that's like the Catholic thing, right? Like going into a confessional. Yes. So the idea of being able to express your sin, I think it does work to a certain extent that you're less likely to sin. Oh, really? If you're allowed to say that, admit it and not fear, you know... Doesn't hide behind a nice doesn't, justification. Yeah, because it's, it's, the, it's the puritanicalism that makes you sin more, I think. And the reason for that is... When you lunge for purity, again, this is this total that you can't achieve. Yeah. And you must keep doing it to imagine that if only you had purity, your life would be amazing. Mm. So, like, if you think about there's all loads of analysis done about the World War II, right? And there's so many reasons why um, Germany ended up losing World War II. But there is a psychoanalytic dimension that I don't think is addressed that much, which is to do with this... Um, totalitarian belief in this wholeness of this a thousand year whatever that they're going to develop but in order to do that they have to have an enemy a scapegoat behind whom this perfect fantasy exists because in this world there is no reality in utopia there is no utopia there's a but if we wipe this group out then we'll we'll get get it but what happens when you wipe the group out Hmm. you find another one you lose well you lose you lose like the whole thing ends Hmm. like the final solution, like it, this, this it shows that Hitler got rid as much as you know he wanted. You know he tried yeah. to do of the people he thought was in the way. Yeah, but then I guess and it he morphs lost. into another. Oh, it's actually yeah. It often does. It often else. does. You replace it, but that was the, that's like yeah. one of the most extreme examples in yeah. human history. Yeah, but it often does just re- replace you, you replace. But you can replace things in much less bad ways. I'm thinking of like. General conspiracy theory. Yeah, conspiracy like, theory is another example you take of this. The yeah. Trump move yeah. of like yeah. January sixth, you're following yeah. like the QAnon or whatever. Yeah. It's like, oh, January sixth, Trump will be in. Oh no, it was like June seventh. Oh no, October twelfth, it's coming. The yeah, goalposts yeah, yeah. kind of keep shifting until. But this is a conspiracy theory is the same logic where instead of being able to accept that, for instance, the people in charge know fuck all mm. and we're all just like idiots navigating reality following, following incentives <laughs> yeah we imagine it's it's more comforting to imagine that there is somebody in charge and that it's just hidden from us and there's a there is a there's an undivided logic somewhere mm. it's more comforting to the conspiracy theorist to think that than to just accept it's a big mess and in knowing it's a big mess and understanding truly it's a big mess then you can make better decisions better ways of dealing with reality there seems to be 
this dimension of like, if you're a friend of the show and you're listening, you're like, man, I'm not sure if I'm following a lot of that high level theory. <laughs> Don't worry. Neither am I. But I'm going to bring you what you're I think I've gathered. great. I mean, I, d- I have no idea what I'm talking I'm about. Just good at, I'm just good at, good at uh, making, it, making it sound that way. It, it, the thing I'm picking up a lot of yeah. is that there seems to be this view of the self, mm-hmm. this view of who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. We often come through life mm-hmm. with the, we'll call it a myth because it's a story of mm-hmm. how humans are. That I am a super logical being. Yeah, yeah. I understand all my moves. Hey, yeah. Conrad, why'd you do that? Ah, oh, well, that was the most logical decision at the time. And I yeah. weighed all the factors yeah. and I did that. Yeah. And it's like, I can have this myth that I can be, uh, I understand myself. Yeah. Like at the very beginning, it's yeah. like, I'm going to give you some assumptions. Yeah. And from the get-go, you're like, well, I mean, maybe you can see what I can't see yeah. in me. Yeah. There's that kind of inherent humility there. But yeah. generally... Pop, most popular story is that like, no, no, I'm going to tell you why I did that. And mm-hmm. I can give you an insight into me. Hey, don't mm-hmm. tell me how I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. I, I know. And I'm going to tell you, mm-hmm. it sounds like at the base of all of this, this idea, all the, all these ideas is this inherent. I am not sure yeah. why I'm doing this, mm-hmm. why I'm doing that. And certain, um, I suppose it might come out in various forms of addiction or various forms of like bad behavior or, um, and I suppose we're more open to this idea with kids being like, oh, well, they don't fully understand what they're doing mm-hmm. yet and we're going to find out what the root cause is. Mm-hmm. But on some level, it sounds like there's the underlying assumption that I don't know mm-hmm. yeah. what, I, what what's driving me. Mm-hmm. And if I can begin with that assumption, then I might be open to hunting for the clues exactly. with somebody else. It's, like, it's the same with, you know, the science developed, like the scientific method developed at a period of time when people realize that to find something out, you have to go in with this, like, deliberate humility. Mm. Like, okay, once we've found something scientifically and we've double-blinded and we've proved it, then that can add to the sum of scientific knowledge yeah. that we can keep in our store. But we, at some stage, we might find out something new that proves that all of that was wrong. Yeah. So there is within science, and I think the sort of scientism today, which is like, these are the facts. It's like, this is true. You know, we ha- we have facts, but not only do we only accrue facts through this humility of like confronting mm-hmm. reality and letting it speak to us and creating the conditions in the lab for reality to speak to us without our pre-con- preconceived whatever. But also once we have those facts, we have to bear in mind that they could, we could discover some new dimension of reality at some stage mm-hmm. that might show that what we, the way we interpreted it was slightly off or like mm-hmm. actually slightly different or, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's like learning comes from this inherent posture of humility. Yeah. Which is a pretty simple concept and probably a concept many people would get around. Mm-hmm. I, th- I want to bring it to you. Okay. Personally. <laughs> right. And this is, this is always the hardest dimension. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the people who love theory and ideas. Yes. Which I think I'm getting those vibes. I don't know. I don't know, Conrad. (laughs) I'm always trying to get away from this. And then it's just every conversation ends up, oh, let let me just tell you about contradiction. To channel channel my wife, Brooke. Okay. And I need to get better at this. Tell me about your journey. Yes. To this way of thinking yeah. and, and I'm going to okay. very over, yeah, there's oversimplify there's many it. different ways that like, I could say that yeah if, but to get like biographical about it well mean? yes yeah. if I if I get really oversimplified yeah. and nailed down on this point where yeah. you go there's something about this psychoanalytic theory mm-hmm. and these thinkers that mm-hmm. you're drawn to mm-hmm. there was a time when you didn't mm-hmm. know about these mm-hmm. guys or mm-hmm. didn't study it mm-hmm. talk to me about your journey to these okay. ideas. Okay. And, and then I suppose what it is that drew you in or mm-hmm. held you there yeah. or, or you found functional or helpful. We can get yeah. to the second half okay. later. Like how does it function yeah. for you? And, okay. and to summarize it as this simple position of like, I don't think I know what's going on within mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And these are some theorists who would really mm-hmm. put some weight behind that. How did you end up? Being introduced to these yeah. ideas, I guess, initially, like your upbringing or background. Yeah. Are you mentally predisposed to just think this way or was there some kind of story arc? There's probably a story. You? I think there's many different story arcs, some more personal than others. I definitely think that at a certain point, I um, experienced a level of irrationality in those who 
as a child you imagine to be rational. Do you have like a, a power anecdote of like Well, okay, so I was sent one, very young to yeah. these very prestigious boarding schools mm-hmm. and I was a scholarship student and also my parents, my father worked um he was like a military diplomat. So part of those jobs is you get sent as a kid to these schools. Right. Hence the accent. Hence the accent, yes. But so I was like in the this the, the very quote unquote pinnacle of like prestigious education. And like this idea, this Lacanian idea of only a Christian can be an atheist, you enter into it, you assume all these things that ideology tells you about these institutions. And for that, and you encounter what the, was that ideology well, like, in that scenario? That, um, first of all, I mean, economically, I think our generation has encountered a lot of this that we grew up because we're the same age. I'm just saying we're the same. We discovered <laughs> this yesterday. Yes. So um, that, um, that we were brought up with this ideological promise the ideology of promise that you had to work hard you work hard you get money yeah the system keeps growing and you it's gonna get better you do everything everything within your power to do that yeah and yet the the ground is dragged from under you with the recession 14 years of stagnation and yeah. recession and this inability the seeming inability seeming inability to change things so there's that but um definitely encountering so i think there's a dialectic of things that the more prestigious an environment is the more likely one is to experience i like abuse is like a a, a, a difficult word because i'm not saying like abuse in a, a, a certain colloquial word but a form of self-sacrifice and sacrifice to put on you precisely because of the prestige i mean it's a very it's a so, very long story yes. so you walk into this school let me give you the example of Athlete A in America, right? Give Elite. me you. Well, okay, because then I might have to like help people and stuff. So, like, well, you can. Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to do. I'm like, going to do it slowly, right? Okay. Give us a give us a Helen inspired anecdote. Okay, first of all, so I used to compete in running. So I was like really this, into yeah. running. My younger sister was as well, and it was like my absolute passion in life. Long I distance. Want, long distance. I okay. wanted to be a professional athlete. And my sister and I were very good at it at a certain point. And then at a certain point, both of us got very, very bad. I did everything within my power because I genuinely believed I was going to go to the Olympics. It was going to be my career. This is what I was going to do. And all that I had done, you know, the ideology was basically my generation of um, people who were involved in sport at that time in the UK was um, we had had this athlete called Paula Radcliffe who had been the world record holder in the marathon. And so basically what had worked for her as this very sort of single-minded, hardworking, she pushed herself so hard that she would like, you know, you know, went through all kinds of uh, physical mm. issues because of that, that that's the way it worked. But that is what often happens is what, what has worked for one person precisely won't work for other people. And so you try to control reality by mimicking what they've done. And, and that's like, what you were doing. Well, this is what the ideology of the system was at the time. One of the ideologies as well was that everybody, all young female athletes were anemic and to get better, they needed to take iron tablets. So we, for a period, my sister at a certain time ducked out because she's like, this is not working. There's something wrong with me. But I like kept going and kept going because I, I was brought up, you know, in this boarding school environment to push yourself. Mm-hmm. You can, or there's no material reality. Well, there is a material reality, but it's not like an economic reality. It's not mm-hmm. a contradictory reality. All you have to do is try hard. And so I did everything. And I also, you know, was brought up on this, which I think is that there's a useful thing in it, which is a sort of the stoicism. And I really kept going. Stoicism, <laughs> like, you suffering is good, suck it up. You suck it up, you suck it up. And that's character building. Yeah. But it turned out, 20, I ended up, so I was at university, but I, I, I worked really, really hard at university. But at a certain point, I was like, I'm not into this. And I thought that I, I then took another job that I thought would be like, give me more. I thought the reason why my running had gone bad was because I was working so hard at university and I went to this other job, which actually ended up being much more work, work than university. And I was like, oh, it's just this job. And if I just leave and create more time in my life, whatever. Then I end up getting a blood test after six. Oh yes, my sister and I were sent from pillar to post for six years. They couldn't work out what was wrong with us. To a certain point where they could just go, maybe there's something wrong with you in the head or whatever. You're just a bit depressed. And it turns out we both have a genetic blood disorder which is to do with the overaccumulation of iron. <laughs> so anything I would have done was pointless. Mm. It was pointless. I mean, so you could argue, you know, I got a lot out of the experience because I kept going and it 
taught me something about myself. But really, like, I mean, it's six years of misery, right? Mm-hmm. And also having gone from being very, very good very easily mm-hmm. to, you know, it's almost humiliating. You try so hard and you, you, you get worse and worse and worse. And I was so caught up in the promise of this is what I do. And almost, I think the more difficult it became for me, the more, th- and I also wasn't happy at university. Like I did all the studying. I'd always been like, I had to get scholarships to stay at these schools and to please my parents. And mm-hmm. I kind of, you know, had a capacity for it and felt that I had to do it. But all I wanted to do was to run around in circles. I also mm-hmm. felt like this was more ethical and that university, the neoliberal university had all these problems. And I also kind of felt that intellectualism really didn't end anywhere. And at least, you know, you weren't harming anybody by running. You know, I it, from experiencing my father's work and we lived in Africa, I sort of felt like so much of what was being done there with good intentions was damaging and stuff. I was like, well, at least this is just running. What, what's so bad about this? But I think the more I wasn't able to do it, the more the utopian vision of it was sustained. But it turned out that, like, and you would have thought, but it's amazing as well, it also really punctured my vision of the healthcare system, you know, because it was not, and and also of the ideology of giving us all iron tablets. Like, because usually people with our condition don't get symptoms until they're like 40 mm-hmm. plus or whatever. And we were like 16 and 19. And it was, re- people just couldn't, this, this incapacity of, like the end of human logic, mm-hmm. you know, it was like, there must be, and I, I always thought that there was, you know, that somebody in authority, some doctor would know everything. And they just mm-hmm. don't. They don't. You know, there's limits. There's so many limits. And everybody, I think, has an experience of that where they are an exception to the rule. Mm. And they think that, oh, it works for everybody else, but this is just a random thing. Yeah. But often, like, a friend of mine's um, father uh, just sadly died and um, had a long time sort of um, passing away. And my friend's confrontation with the medical system in the face of his father's condition really showed to him that this ideology, you know, you watch these medical dramas and these doctors save the day and you're like, oh, wow, lovely, lovely, makes me feel all good inside and it's so heartwarming and it's all solvable. And then you actually meet reality where it is and it's like, oh, it's not like that. Mm-hmm. But we don't want to, you know, it's it's almost too traumatic to to hold that knowledge. So it sounds like you enter into this world yeah. of the academic elite, this this world of the successful economic system, everyone who goes to this school, they're up there, mm-hmm. hey, if you want to be rich like us, here's the economic mm-hmm. ideology, you just work really hard, you get these jobs, mm-hmm. if you want to be a good athlete, here's what you need to do. The ingredients is just literally hard work, and guess what, you're at these schools, so this is, this is the pathway there. Mm-hmm. Sounds like then you encountered the differences of yourself, how those copy-paste rules that you apply mm-hmm. to yourself, you're like, why am I not getting these outcomes that I'm told should come? Maybe a lot of people, maybe a lot of uh, our generation, the millennial generation that are told, mm-hmm. you know, if you just work hard, you'll be able to like afford a house. And then a lot of us at 35, we're like, man, freak, these house prices keep them going up or what? Every like, year, yeah. And so we're like, but then, you know, the, the boomer mm-hmm. generation might be like, no, no, like if you just work hard and then, mm-hmm. you know, sacrifice and all these sorts of things, um, it's just kind of But this is the thing as well. There's bit. this idea that we have more control than we do. So the example of the running, right? That freak of genetics made my sister and I very good because we had really high hemoglobin levels when we were really young. And then also made us terrible at a certain point. But the ideology is you can all do it. Yeah. As long as you but really it's like genes. <laughs> And it's the same with a lot of it. So a lot of people who are at the schools that I was at, and there's a lot, um, you know, of, of critique of private schools. And, you know, I, I would critique private schools very much so, and I'm not even sure that I think they should exist. But are you there as a symptom of the fact that you already have money, which means that you're in a position yeah, right. to... You're going to be rich because your parents are rich, not because you're going to this school. Exactly. And a lot of the excuse for the success of somebody who's already born rich is that, oh, but they've done this and they have this education, which, you know, there's elements of truth to it, but it's also dialectical. And it, feed, it like feeds yes, into it. Yes, it feeds into it. You and can't separate out the fact that let's take a bunch of poor people, put them in a rich school and see how many come up. Generally, everyone in there is already not, rich. I mean, I came from a privileged background anyway, yep. but, um, but it's just, it's much, A, reality is not controllable just by our sole efforts. There are economic realities that... Basically, and this is a Marxist point, that every economic form 
of organization represses the contradiction further and further down. And we, we perceive ourselves to have more and more and more freedom, free and free and free and free and free from some all knowing God. But not that the God is the answer, but we aren't free. There are these constraints that we try to paper over with ideology. So psychoanalysis is very much aligned with ideology critique and it gets you to see reality to be able to so ideology mm-hmm. is this soothing answer that says yeah if you do this this will happen or everything's black and white or this is the way it works in a way that's more soothing than how complicated and quite shit reality actually it is it gives you hope it gives so, you hope so yeah. the, the ideology of the american dream says yeah. just work harder mm-hmm. and you will become a millionaire and that's the ideology mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you're saying in the realm of psychoanalysts um of the an- psychoanalyst you can try try your best to see what is a story is this actually having mm-hmm. the intended result exactly. is it not and also it gets you to be able to acknowledge what desires you are uh-huh. marked with Okay. And acknowledging, so okay, so a desire, there is no end to desire. So there's not a solution to just go after blindly what you want and you're going to be happy. But yeah. there is an answer in acknowledging and and going after your desires anyway, knowing that they're not going to be perfect. Yes. But this is what you're endowed with. So psychoanalysis helps you to, so this is where the idea of repression comes from. So Freud's idea, I mean, repression is a really complex issue. And it has been misinterpreted a lot. So a lot of, we get this sort of like bastardized critical theory, quote unquote, left analysis of repression that like, oh, the reason why, like heterosis patriarchal capitalism. And it's like, that's a very easy answer where it's like, oh, we'll get rid of capitalism if we just get rid of the patriarchy. Oh, the patriarchy is, it's it's really much more complicated than that. And there might be an element of truth to it, but this is, this is profoundly unpsychoanalytic. So repression is really the repression. And, and also you get this idea of, se- like from people like Wilhelm Reich, this idea of sexual repression. And that, that so Freud did write about like repression, civilization coming out of repression and repression coming out of civilization. But that's a, you know, but anyway. But, side note. So side note, but so, so, so Wilhelm Reich writes about like how if you can overcome sexual repression, you'll overcome capitalism. <laughs> But actually, this is absolutely not the case. We see the sexual revolution. We just became, we just, sexuality just entered the market. Yes, we can so now buy basically, and sell so it. yeah, exactly. Oh, so, okay, so, yeah, so yeah. the idea is like, if we it's can sell not, ourselves yeah. free sexually, then capitalism won't. Yeah, be but bollocks! Now we just right. have OnlyFans and like, yes, naked people in ads. Yeah, like, so it's what? It's, this, it's the same thing. Uh, but we maybe have the ideological supplement. We feel like better, and or we're so progressive because we have this. But we've just repressed the contradiction even more mm. because. True psychoanalytic theory gets you to tarry with what's really going on. And what we often want is some quick fix ideological solution, which ends up being worse. But there comes a point, and I think, you know, people of our generation, where it becomes more and more. So either you can be confronted with it in psychoanalysis and you use your own life to encounter this reality. Or you experience it in reality. Yeah, working for 40 years as hard as you possibly can and still being in poverty and then waking up one day being like, this ideology I've been sold is a it's lie. A, but the thing that's really difficult is like, what do you do with that insight? Because then material reality keeps you imprisoned in being able to do anything about it. Yeah. And so, okay, I'm getting these connections between discovering what our desire might be is helpful in then showing us what story or ideology we might believe that will fulfill that desire. So we have these two things, something within me that wants me to maybe be liked by more people. Maybe that's a desire going on there and that might explain why I'm attached to this certain ideology of oh, fame and money could fix that desire of just wanting to be liked more, more often. Um, And so if that's, what we're trying to do, what's the next? So often what happens is there's a re- when you repress something, it returns in this horrible, like way worse way. So let's say somebody who wants to be famous, right? Like your, your desires are marked upon you as you enter into language based on the contingent reality of what's going on around you. As, like, so you know what we're talking about? Who am I at the beginning? You are the sum 
of all these interactions, these contingent interactions that happen between you and your surroundings and all these people that are around you growing up. So you are other people already. Mm. Um, but you're inhabited by desires from other people, people you want to please, but also your own desires. And your own desires often get repressed. And then you feel this real dissatisfaction can come back in sort of anger, addiction, because you're not getting what you want. Mm -hmm. And often the problem is you don't even know what you want. Mm-hmm. And you're not given time in society to know what you want because there's one form of desire, which is like what we're shown on Instagram, and you feel like you have to go after that. Mm-hmm. And also there's economic motivations to go after that. If you'd like to hear the rest of that episode, another 30 minutes or so, you can head over to ideasdigest.org, become a plus subscriber and help support the show. You can also rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, follow us on YouTube, see full videos of my conversations on YouTube, fire through on Instagram, on the DMs, anyone you think I should speak with. Thanks for listening and I'll catch everyone in the next episode.